Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 223rd episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Marianella Collado. Marianella is the CEO and majority shareholder of Tobias Financial Advisors, an independent REA based in Plantation, Florida, that services over 500 million of assets for just under 300 client households. What's unique about Marianella, though, is that she is the next generation owner and leader of Tobias, having successfully navigated an unexpectedly accelerated succession plan laid out by the founder, Ben Tobias. And in the years since, has grown the firm from a one-person practice into a business with multiple lead advisors and an eye towards developing the subsequent succession plan for the next next generation, all while intentionally keeping the Tobias financial name. In this episode, we talk in depth about how Marianella's deep background and expertise in tax planning for ultra-high net worth individuals gave her instant credibility when coming into a practice where clients had only ever worked with the founder how her vision for building out a larger advisory business with the capacity to serve more clients didn't end up being a roadblock for the succession plan since she and Ben shared the same foundational values around client service and advice, and the subtle changes that Marianella made around the client experience and branding ahead of the final execution of the agreement that helped foster a sense of natural transition from the client's perspective. We also talk about how Marianella identified early on after joining the firm that in order to create a solid foundation for growth in the future, she would have to formalize a development program to attract and retain talent. The tangible lesson everyone at the firm learned shortly thereafter about why a succession plan is such an essential element of servicing clients well. What it was like when Marianella realized the gravity of the role she assumed after she was handed the company checkbook and instantly became responsible for her staff's livelihoods and how that led her to hire someone else to run the day-to-day operations of the firm so that Marianella could focus on leading the business's growth and its client service. And be certain to listen to the end, where Marianella shares how she set out to create a cohesive culture within the firm, align employee compensation with firm goals, and formalize her advisor's organization structure by implementing Angie Herbers's Diamond Team model. How Marianella fosters relationships with CPAs and attorneys by conducting sound checks to get feedback on planning strategies she's implementing with her own clients, and in turn, making those outside centers of influence shine in the eyes of their own clients. And the industry recognition that Tobias Financial has earned for building out a diverse team of advisors and support staff, and the key insights around diversity and inclusion that help Marianella create the structure to achieve such diversity within her team. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Marianella Collado. Welcome, Marianella Collado, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for having me. I, I really appreciate you joining us today, and I'm, I'm looking forward to the discussion around, I think it's, it's going to be kind of a theme of, of succession planning and and succession planning from the from the successors end. I know you've you've been through a succession plan over the past couple of years. Or I guess you you are you are the successor. You are 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 now the majority shareholder and 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 leader of the firm. And you know, I was fascinated by your story when I had heard about it because I find for a lot of advisors when they go through succession plans, particularly 
the the kind of firm that you that you took over, which was sort of a oh, a, a one man practice. I mean, there there were a few people like a a one lead advisor founder practice with you know support advisor and support staff, and and have now over the span of just a couple of years turned it into a much larger firm with seventeen people growing rapidly. And to me, it's 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 a such an interesting transition because so many advisors I see when they when they are founders and owners and they're looking at succession, they tend to try to find successors who are, are kind of mini me's, like mini me, mini them, like just like them. You know, they try, try to face they find themselves from thirty years ago when they were getting started, so that they can give someone else. The same kind of path, and more importantly, at least for them, for their perspective, like someone who will continue the firm in in their footsteps, in their style, basically in their vision. And and one of the biggest places where I see succession plans fall apart, just in practice in our industry, is when successors come in and say, you know, love what you built, taking it in a totally different direction, and and that can create a lot of challenge, a lot of friction. It, it ends out making a lot of succession plans fall apart. And so you seem to have navigated that path as well. I'm, I'm sure with a couple of speed bumps and travails along the way, which I suspect we'll get into. But I'm, I'm, I'm excited to talk about this idea of, of what does it look like to come in you know, as a successor of a succession plan and, and coming in with a, a different kind of vision than what the firm and the founder was to begin with and say like, you know, love what you built, totally respect what you built, but I am taking in a different direction because I, I own it now. <laughs> this is where we're going. Yes. And, and as you mentioned that definitely there are their, their challenges, but, you know, I will give the, the founder credit in that when he met me, you know, he actually, he said the, the exact same words you just said, you know, you were me 30 years ago. We basically grew up just a few miles apart, but generations apart. And, and what he meant by that, it, it was just the background, the, the, the education, sort of the upbringing. Uh, so even though we're, we're different in so many ways, you know, he, he kind of saw the vision of bringing in a female advisor and and what what I give him credit for as well is recognizing that I, I don't want to say an upgrade but just kind of looking at the opportunity to bring more sophisticated planning and, and because of my background I mean I, I was 12 almost 12 years with Bessemer Trust uh, working on you know ultra high net worth individuals so that was sort of the technical skills I had so I give him credit because even though I, I did and I said the exact same thing to him I love what you've built and I'm seeing a vision that we could now sort of raise the bar and take it to the next level. So philosophically from from a, a client service and a client advisory perspective, he knew that we were philosophically aligned, but what I brought in that was different was sort of this idea of just elevating what he had already built on. Well, I I love the I love the way that you frame that that you were you were philosophically aligned, right? Like different vision same values. And and to me that really becomes I probably like the only foundational point that 
that you can really build around if you want to see a successor come in with a substantively different vision is you know if you're philosophically aligned if the values are the same then your successor might build it differently but they're still going to build it in your mold because they're still building around the same core values in the first place Exactly. And and I think it's funny because uh, when I made the decision to join Tobias Financial Advisors back in 2015, and, and it wasn't an easy decision, but it just, it was the right time because of, you know, where I was personally, my family, I, I'm, I, I'm a mother of three kids. And at that point, I don't know how I was juggling what I was juggling, but you know, just kind of thinking about what what was I going to be doing at this smaller RIA, right? I'm kind of used to working with families whose net worth, you know, exceeded $100 million. And so, you know, I, I wasn't sure how I was going to kind of fit in and add value. I just wasn't sure where it was going to fit in. And so I, I made a decision coming here that, you know, my role was just to sit in every client meeting with Ben and just, you know, absorb. And I said, I'm just going to sit in and just kind of see what, what it is, what conversations are we having? And even though I tried, Michael just really tried hard, just I wasn't going to say a word. I couldn't help myself because then I started getting excited. I'm like, whoa, the light bulb's going off. What, you know, have we thought about this? Have we looked at this? And that's where I think what made our succession plan so successful was that, you know, it, it was happening naturally in, in the client's eyes, right? They were seeing that, you know, maybe I did have the skills to sort of fill in those shoes and maybe make the shoes even nicer, you know? And so, you know, they, they started turning to me, you know, they started respecting what I was bringing to the table so that by the time this actually did happen, it wasn't such a shocker to them. It was like, oh, that, that hadn't happened already because I could sworn that it had already happened just because they were seeing the level of service, the, you know, the, the way the meetings, the look and feel, the flow, everything was starting to feel and look different. Interesting. And so I guess in practice, the, the fact that you were on board for some period of time before the, the, the formal, the official air quotes, succession plan transition began meant Clients were already seeing for a firm that had that had always been Ben as the original founder and and lead advisor become not just Ben, and you know I I uh, I, I knew Ben when he was active in the practice. You know Ben Ben had some gray hair. Like I, I'm, I'm sure everybody got at some point. Like Ben's not going to be doing this indefinitely. There probably needs to be some other advisors who are younger if they're going to be around. So I'm 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 sure clients were picking up on what's going on that that just clients seeing like oh there's this other person in the meeting and they're much younger but they are mature and experienced and look she clearly knows her stuff. Look at these ideas that she's bringing to the table. You know, clients were already doing the mental transition of my future isn't really just going to be Ben at, at this point. It's it's going to be Marianella and this next generation of advisors coming in. And I'm working with them and I'm interacting with them and I'm having positive experience with them and this is going well. And then they get the official news and it's like, oh, well, yeah, we made that mental shift like a year ago. <laughs> exactly. But you know what? And, and, and that's similar to 
you know, I tell my advisors, you know, you don't behave a certain way because you're given a title, you know, in this situation, you do put the cart before the horse, right? You, you do start behaving in that role that it is you're looking to have, right? So if it's that senior advisor role, you start behaving in that way before that promotion comes. And I think, you know, I, I follow my own advice. I don't just tell people that. So if I wanted to, you know, be the owner, be the sort of the, the, the person kind of taking over the helm, I needed to start behaving that way. And it was through action and through building that trust and that rapport with the clients. So that was, you know, my priority coming here. It wasn't, I'm here, I'm, I'm kind of taking over, a new sheriff is in town. That wasn't my thinking coming here. It was more about what, what can I learn from this and what are things like, where am I going to add value and what has Ben been doing and how do I piggyback off of sort of, because you also don't want to do a full 180, right? Clients are used to certain things. So it was just kind of slow introductions of an enhancement here and there, sort of say. We're going to talk a little bit later about what the firm looks like now and where you've taken it since since the succession plan completed and 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 you took over the role but take me back first to when you came to the firm as you were as you were saying like you you came out of the environment of Bessemer Trust you came into the firm so like paint the picture for us i mean what was the advisory firm what did it look like when you showed up, whenever it was five, five or six years ago, to say like, okay, I'm 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 going to join Ben. We're going to do this thing. Like, what what was that firm in terms of size or, or or team or clients or assets? However, you you sort of size it up and paint the picture. Like, what did what did that firm look like? So when I met Matt, which actually was the one I met first at at an estate planning council, and just you know would sit next to him and tell him all the things I did. And I got invited out to lunch, I think it was July, 2015. And, you know, they were telling me they had this idea that I would kind of just come in and and be part of their succession plan, which was at that time was supposed to be more of a five or seven year plan at that time, and I remember, you know, my my clients, uh, when I was telling them I was leaving Bessemer, they were so worried. They're like, you have to be careful. You know, these firms, sometimes out of Florida, you know, the Bernie Madoffs of the world. So they were really worried. Where was I going? So, of course, you know, I started doing my due diligence because I'm like, yeah, where am I going? Who is this guy? And, you know, doing all my due diligence, Ben had been in business since 1980, turned his CPA practice into an RIA back in, um, I guess, late 80s, around 1989, 1990. Had been doing this for a good, you know, 25, 30 years as far as the advisory side of the business. And at that time in 2015, he had about 250 million in assets under management revenues at about, you know, maybe one and a half, 1.6. And so looking at the size of the clients, they were about the million dollar range. At that time, our minimum was 750,000. And we were providing, I'm going to put in quotes, you know, just kind of holistic wealth management um, service. And so just kind of thinking about, I I wasn't sure where I was going to take the firm. I just 
saw that he had a nice foundation, was a profitable practice. Uh, ben was pretty much for all intents and purposes, the the lead advisor pretty much at every meeting. Matt had some clients that he, you know, he he was the lead on, but every, you know, the clients would ask for for Ben to be there. So he was kind of looked at as the person to meet with. And how many clients were there? So there were about 130, 140 clients at that time. Okay. So pretty, pretty to me, like, like classic firm, firm at capacity, right? Like most advisors start topping out at 75 to 100 clients. If you've got a support advisor along with you, you can sometimes get to 125 to 150. That's, that's right where they were. It sounds like, like Ben and Matt had a 130 to 140 clients. So you're not necessarily growing and adding a lot so you can service a few more. And that was, and that was the deal averaging, I guess, just over $10,000 of, of revenue per client given the one and a half million dollar revenue base. So, you know, a good, good, solid, profitable practice kind of sitting at capacity and doing its thing. And was there a lot of support team structure in place as well? So when I came, we had uh, two sort of client administrators, amazing. And, and I, I would say, my God, they do so much from opening accounts to they, they did it all. And, and we still have uh, Peggy who, who's with us. she you know, she's been with the firm for over 12 years now. So two, basically two support administrative staff. And then we had an associate, but kind of, you know, when I came, I kind of saw this associate and felt like he had no direction on where he was going and what he was doing. So there wasn't much of a sort of development system in place at that time. So with that structure at that time, I saw that one of the challenges we were going to have was attracting and keeping talent. So I knew that I needed to sort of bring in that experience that I had had more on a corporate setting, right? I, I mean, I started my career with Arthur Anderson. You joined Arthur Anderson because they had, you know, state-of-the-art training program. And unfortunately, they collapsed. But anyway, the point is Go that- on. For other reasons, not related to the wonderful training program. Exactly. The training had nothing to do with their collapse. But the, the point is that, you know, I knew that coming in, one of the challenges we have in our industry, right, when you do planning is the talent, right, the scalability of the work we do. And it gets harder because you need people, right? It, it, be, it requires brain power and you need talent and you need to be able to attract it and, and maintain it. So it was a very small team. I came on board and I, I may have scared that associate because I said, you know, I'm going to train you and do this. We're going to do that. He left us. So then we were just kind of, I remember that that year end, uh, we're working on year end tax planning and, and Matt and I look at each other and we're like, well, I guess it's the two of us to run all our client projections. Yeah. So I, I think the, the, the vision was that there were a few things we needed to start uh, streamlining and cleaning up in order to really turn this into something. And I needed to go slowly. So the first, I'm going to say six months, it was me more of sort of getting the lay of the land and what, where were my blind spots and what were things I needed to start implementing. So you come into this practice, like I'm just trying to make sure we got a clear understanding of what it looked like. So, you know, Ben is a CPA financial planner 
He's been doing this for 25 odd years, has a great client base of 130 to 140 clients, more than one and a half million of revenue, almost 250 million of AUM. He's servicing these clients with Matt, kind of his you know, right-hand advisor, slowly taking the lead on clients, although some clients aren't used to letting go of Ben yet. Two client service administrators and an associate, so a team of five supporting and managing this client base. And and like that's that's the business. That's where it's at. And and I'm I'm gonna assume it, correct me if I'm wrong, like not necessarily growing a lot at this point, because it's was already at a pretty good level. Yeah, I mean the the idea of business development back then was just waiting for the for the phone to ring for the most part. And that was it. So if and it's funny because some clients said, Well, you know, are you taking on new clients? Because I understood that, you know, it was at capacity. Like, I guess they had heard that at some point. And I said, no, we're, we're growing. Uh, we're looking to grow. So it, it was more of, you know, not, not really hunting for new business, but if it came, it came. And it was just kind of, you know, you got a, a call here and there from a NAPFA referral or fee-only network. And, and that was it. You just kind of waited for the phone to ring. There was no really proactive approach to business development. Okay. Which, you know, I, I, it makes sense, right? Ben, Ben's been doing it for a long time. He's got some good connections. You've got a happy client base who can certainly let their treasured friends and family know if they feel like sending a name along and, and, and referring someone in, but not necessarily looking to do a lot to to grow because the practice was at a good place. So you're in that environment and we're in 2015. And so Ben and Matt start this process of like, hey, we should talk to Marianella. So I'm I'm presuming like it it was acknowledged at this point, like, okay, the practice is at a is at a point where Ben is, I'm gonna guess was probably into his 60s by that point. And he's just looking at this and saying, like, Okay, I gotta, I gotta figure out this succession thing because just it's kind of coming time, and I, I want to retire out by seventy ish or so. You know, and his vision was really not to retire, but you know, he would always say, "I, I plan, I help my clients plan, and I wouldn't be doing right by them if I didn't plan for who was taking over should something happen." And maybe it was some writing on the wall, but also, you know, his his wife was ill. And so he just kind of saw that there were things that could potentially take him away from from the day to day. So he just wanted to have something more formal and and knowing that he had the right people in place so that if he did need to step back, it was going to be, he knew it was going to be sort of smooth and, and his clients would be serviced, which, you know, I don't know. It was perfect foresight, I guess, at that time for him, because that was 2015. So 2016 was a pretty rough year for him because exactly what he was anticipating did happen. His wife kind of that was a roller coaster of a year in terms of her health. And so 2016, Matt and I pretty much ran the business from meeting with clients and bringing on new business. That was, we did it by ourselves because he was in and out just taking care of, of his personal 
fares. So, you know, and this is why you do that. This is why you have a plan in place because you may say, I plan to retire in five or seven years, but anything can happen, right? Where all of a sudden it has to be accelerated for one reason or another. So you come on board to say, okay, we're we're going to do this over the next five to seven years. And a, and a year later, Ben's wife is sick. He's hardly in the office. And it's already basically the, the Marinella and Matt show. Pretty much. And so by the end of 2016, he comes in and it must have been October, November. And he says, you know, I realize I, I haven't even been able to come into the office. And I, you know, I'm, I'm glad that the two of you have pretty much been been running with things. And so because of where I am right now, I think we should accelerate the plan because we had already hired FP Transitions to sort of help us develop what this succession plan was going to look like. We had laid it all out that it was going to be five to seven years. We had done that like in early 2016, but never did we anticipate that maybe six or seven months later, we would just full throttle on it. Interesting. Interesting. So what was the, understood that it changed, and we'll talk about that in a moment, but I'm curious, Lisa, what what was the original plan? Like what, what was the original five to seven year pl- plan? How was it, how was it expected to work before so life it did was, what life <laughs> It was expected that over the course of five to seven years, he would be transitioning incremental ownership interest so that by the end of year five, six, and seven, he'd sort of end up as a minority owner, maybe with 25% ownership of the business. So that was his vision and that he would sort of stay engaged. As I mentioned, we ended up making the decision at the end of 2016 to just accelerate the whole thing and kind of just go to year seven and end up right where he was looking to end up in year seven and just do it all at the beginning of 2017. So in the original version, like were these were these going to be like transitions as compensation for the role that you're doing? Were these actually going to be purchases? Like you were going to buy the shares at whatever FP transitions valued them at? Because I know they also do valuations. They did. They did. It was a buyout using soft notes so that you, you'd you buy in based on the valuation at the end of the prior year, sort of. We had a whole system in place and it would be designed with the soft notes where your distributions would pretty much cover the note back to Ben. Uh, that was sort of the original plan in increments to get to the 75% ownership to next gen. You make an interesting point there of, of kind of structuring it so that the distributions cover the note back to Ben. It's, it's, it's one of the things I find is, I guess, often not well understood in succession plans. You know, I, I, I hear a lot of, of successors say things like, you know, the, the practice is too big for me to buy. And you know, the reality is if the advisory firm is running profitably, which you know most do, we see a lot that have 20 to 30% profit margins. Sometimes high income solos have have even more profitability than that. Like as long as the advisory firm is is profitable, like it's never too big to buy as long as you finance it over enough years, <laughs> as long as you amortize it. Over enough years, right? If you 
overgeneralize a little. Like if I buy the firm and I and I pay it down over seven years, I'm paying essentially one seventh of the principal per year, or about fourteen percent, about fourteen percent of the value. And so, you know, it's not uncommon to see advisory firms end out with what essentially are anywhere from ten to twenty percent dividend rates. Right, the profit margin is higher, but as a function of the valuation, it it, it can still end out being a ten to twenty percent dividend rate. And you know, if you're if you're paying payments that run about fifteen percent, and you're taking dividends out that run about fifteen percent, like these things kind of offset each other. And if the math doesn't work there, you know, you make it an eight or a nine or a ten year payment, and then the math works better, particularly when interest rates are so low. So the interest doesn't actually add much to that to that equation. You know, the the deals do tend to get pretty close to self financing at worst. Maybe the first year or two cash is tight until the firm grows a little bit more and then the and then the the distribution cash flows outweigh it. So I, I think it's it's interesting that you were kind of structuring it that way up front to say just we're gonna we're gonna finance this over enough years and it sounds like this would essentially have just been Ben seller financing the note in and of itself and 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 that would be the deal. Correct. Yeah, that that was the that was the original plan. Okay. Okay. So I guess the the only other thing I'm curious about in in the original plan, you had talked about selling incremental ownership interests over over five to seven years that buy like years five, six, and seven. Ben's ownership is whittling down to it to a target of twenty five percent. What was leading the plan of saying we're going to do it incrementally as opposed to we can just you know do the sale today, finance it over seven years, and seven years from now we're done paying off the note and Ben's at his new ownership level. Like, was there a a driver as to why incremental versus a big chunk just financed over a long period of time? It was Ben's vision, so you know I didn't want to you know I wanted him to design it the way he thought it appropriate. You know, again, I I I thought I I needed that time to sort of continue sort of building that rapport and kind of learning the the ropes around an RIA and running a practice. Uh, so I was comfortable with that timeline. I thought it was a good enough runway. So we just let him design it the way he thought he wanted to see it. I didn't want to push him to do it quicker or this way or that way. It was, and then he was also in his mind participating in that growth that was happening in between year one and year, you know, five, six, and seven. Okay. So that, right. That's, that's one of the, I find the tension points for a lot of successors, right. I, I, you know, it's those of us that say like, I, I don't want to be successoring in and, and buying, buying the growth that I'm creating, right. Like I'm, I'm helping to grow the firm and I'm still buying shares as I go, which means I'm making my own shares more expensive by, by by growing the firm as I'm buying in, and you know, yes, mathematically that's true, but you know, as I think your story is illustrating, like you have to consider this from the seller's end as well. Like, if they know there's some growth coming, they don't necessarily want to sell the shares, and if that's the case, like you want to buy them all now, and they don't want to sell any of them right now because it's still growing. So, what's the what's the midpoint? Often you sell incrementally, so you you buy a little bit of your growth, and they. Participate in a little bit of the growth before they sell, but you know you you both have growing skin in the game through a transition, and it's it's you know it's kind of the 
advisory firm equivalent of dollar cost averaging in for the successor and dollar cost averaging out as the as the seller, right? And we think we we do it for the same reason, right? You're trying to sort of minimize regret and man, manage the concern that there's a big change in value shortly after you sell that if it was a good change in value, you don't want to miss all of that as the seller. If there's a bad change in value, you want to be buffered a little as the buyer and incremental plans kind of meet the midpoint on that for a lot of people. And I and I think that was that epiphany for Ben at the end of 2016 because he had realized that he was pretty much, you know, MIA for that year and we had sort of sustained it and maintained it and even, you know, added new clients. So I think in his mind is I don't feel right about this because you guys are are work and and that's what I I respect that he came to that realization and maybe not all founders would have been as uh, forthcoming and, and 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 fair right so I think I I appreciate the fact that he came to that realization and said you know guys this you guys have pretty much you're running with it let's just let's just move it forward It's an interesting point so like part of the, it sounds like part of the reason that he he wanted to continue to own shares and transition gradually was he really envisioned himself continuing to be an active participant and actively engaged in the advisory firm. And when when he realized he was going to be an absentee owner because of what was happening in his personal life was was the point that he decided he just wasn't going to be the owner anymore. So had you done like the first tranche the first sale the first transition yet or was it still like you were planning this five to seven year deal in 2016 it was going to start in the year that followed and then all of a sudden it was like no 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 we're going to do the whole thing all at once we did we did round one in early 2016 and then by end of 16 decided to accelerate and by spring of 2017 the full plan was uh, complete, but where the twist, uh, I guess, the twist of events is that with that acceleration, it was no longer really, you know, seller finance with soft notes. At that point, we had to really put a skin in the game. And that meant, you know, looking at SBA loans and kind of doing that type of financing. So that was a game changer. And and really where the, the story took a, a big twist was, Final moments, and, and, and Ben was not happy with this, final moments, we're about to get ready to schedule closing and everything, and SBA comes back and says, um, you know, your plan calls for Ben staying on board to the tune of, you know, I think it was 20, 25%. SBA doesn't allow that. We said, what? And so at that point, you know, Matt and I looked at each other and said, well, I, yeah, I don't think this is going to go through because that was, you know, he, that was important to him. They said they wouldn't allow it because the, the business had to, I guess, from an SBA perspective, they didn't want it to seem like the founder was cashing out, but still, you know, being part of the business, not really selling. So they didn't allow him to stay on board and Ben decided to still move forward, which was a big surprise. He wasn't happy with that. So I just want to understand the, the, the context here. So Ben, so Ben decides we're going to do this thing more accelerated. 
He still wants to do the, I'm going down to 25%, but just, I'm not going to go down to 25% over seven years. I guess six more at that point. I'm, I'm going down to 25% immediately. If I'm going to move that much at once, I'm not comfortable doing this as a seller finance note. Like, y'all got to go get a bank loan and and write a check. And, you know, I, I want my check now. You can settle up with the bank over whatever the payment period is going to be. So you go to the bank, you end out with, a, with an SBA loan because they have lots of loan provisions that are favorable for supporting small businesses. That's why it's the Small Business Administration. You've got an SBA loan. It's lining up. You've got terms. You've got all the rest. And then you find out, oh, wait, but there's a requirement in this particular SBA loan because I know a, a lot of SBA loans have very specific program requirements that you have to meet. So, you know, you're, you're using this SBA loan for people to buy out business owners. If you're going to use this loan, they have to be completely bought out. Ben can't stay. Or, or I guess Ben can't keep ownership. Interesting. So so the the deal gets struck. Term, like Terms are set. Ben suddenly, surprisingly, is out for the whole thing. So I, I guess from your end, it's like, oh, surprise, you're buying another 25% that you didn't think you were buying. It's like, hey, you were, you were thought you already knew you were going to be in for millions. So like, what's, what's a couple hundred thousand more in shares? Exactly, exactly. And at that point, it, um, in a way, it was a little bit liberating because now we knew and not that I was going to do a full 180. Oh yeah, I, I was going to take the firm in this direction. And now that you really don't have much of a say, we're going to go in this direction. But it was a little bit liberating because is all right now, you know, because I, I, out of respect, I would say, hey, you know, what do you think? I'm planning to do this. But now I was all right, Matt, we've got this. We're going to do this. In a sense, in the way we were going to grow, what we were going to do, we just had full autonomy to just do it the way we wanted to. Exactly, exactly. And at that point, um, in a way, it was a little bit liberating because now we knew, and not that I was going to do a full 180, oh yeah, I I was going to take the firm in this direction. And now that you really don't have much of a say, we're going to go in this direction. But it was a little bit liberating because is all right, now you know, because I, I, out of respect, I would say, hey, you know, what do you think? I'm planning to do this. But now I was, all right, Matt, we've got this. We're going to do this. In a sense, in the way we were going to grow, what we were going to do, we just had full autonomy to just do it the way we wanted to. Help me understand now the the dynamic with you and Matt and like who bought what and how much. Just because it sounds like... Matt had already been there and been there for a while. He was the one who met you at the estate planning council meeting to bring you into this discussion you know, two years prior with Ben to say, like, Here, here's someone that might might be able to, to help be a successor and support this. You know, for many firms and deals of this structure, like just if Matt's the one that's been there the longest, he might be the one that ends up taking the the biggest chunk of the shares. It doesn't sound like that's the case. You were sort of you were newer in the door, but came into a different role and and came in to buy more of the shares. So how does this work amongst the successors, particularly when you, know, you were you were kind of new kid on the block in the firm to a firm that already had someone there who was at least participating in the succession plan as well. Right. And, and, you know, I have a lot of respect for Matt. We get along. I, I joke, you know, picking a partner is, 
is just as important as, you know, like picking a spouse, right? Because if you don't have a good relationship with your partner, that's going to be uh, pretty miserable. And I got along with Matt um, extremely well from the beginning. I think we had a lot of mutual respect for each other. He had basically grown up at Tobias Financial Advisors, right? He learned the business from the ground up. He started filling out client applications to doing the trades to, I mean, he just did it all. So I knew that he was going to be a key part of, uh, you know, sort of the yin and the yang, right? You know, he has all the, the, the background, the operational background, the trading. He's our chartered financial analyst. He's kind of lead of all portfolios. But I, uh, we have different personalities, you know, he jokes, he goes, you're just the people person, you know, you talk to someone and they just want to keep talking to you. So, you know, we sort of saw the skill sets that we brought in and my ability to connect with people. And so that was kind of the arrangement is, you know, I can sort of be the rainmaker, be the strategist, you know, what, what planning ideas are we talking to clients about? So I'm directing the whole advisory team. Like, this is what we need to be talking to our clients about now. Interest rates are low. Let's talk about this. So sort of directing. He saw that in me. So he, you know, I, I was a little bit uncomfortable. I just didn't know, you know, Ben insisted, you, you need to make sure you're the majority, majority owner, you know, you're, you're, you're going to help the firm grow. And I said, but I, I respect all of the, the skills and the talent that he brings to the table. So we sort of just reached the, you know, it, it's almost 50, 50 for all, <laughs> but it's uh 51 and 49. Okay. Okay. And, and that was, that was essentially your mutual agreement that, like you were, you were going to have the majority stake, if only by a slim margin. Like you were going to have the majority stake, and and a division of roles was going to be you're you're the rainmaker, you're the you're the strategist. Matt drives the investment side and the trading and some of the operations end. So talk to us about what it's like, like when the deal gets struck and you've suddenly signed the signed the paperwork, like. Congratulations. You own it. Ben doesn't. You're you're now the proud owner of a multi-million dollar debt. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. I it, you know, unlike a pair of shoes, you know, you can't go and return them. So I I think the next day I was like, "Holy, you know what? I am now responsible for all these people and all these clients." So it just kind of hit me and and the next day Ben comes in and says, "Well, you know, this is now yours." So he dropped he dropped all the all the financials. He actually had a, a checkbook. He goes, here you go. Have at it. Here's the QuickBooks. You can run with it. I said, oh my God. Oh my God. What did I just do? It's really, it's really real when they hand you the checkbook, isn't it? I know. I'm like, what do you mean? I have to, I have to actually run this thing. I had a moment of this is insane. So I found myself sort of doing my advisory job from you know nine to five. And then at five, I would start sort of, okay, now I put on my CFO hat, maybe a little HR hat. So it was pure insanity. I literally wanted to pull all my hair out because you know, I had to worry that the, that the bills were paid, that, you know, I was transferring cash between here and there. And, you know, I didn't miss paying for our health insurance or paying the employees. So I, 
and my my one of my associates would laugh. She goes, every time Nella was inside the QuickBooks, you know, you'd hear her just kind of, you know, screaming. Ah! So I quickly learned, Michael, that I enjoy what I do, but I do not enjoy running a business. So that didn't take much time for me to learn that. Is that awkward when you've bought said business and have seven figures of debt associated with it? And then I realized like, I'm not enjoying this. This does not bring me joy. Like it, balancing our books is not bringing me joy. This is not what I want to do. And I would find myself, if I had to go and kind of pick up the kids, they had sports, I would go do all that. And then I'd have to log back in, put them in bed, log back in because I needed to make sure I ran payroll. I could not like not pay people. So I did that for about, uh, so it was May, June, July, for about five months. And then I thought, self, this is not sustainable. And at that point, my husband was CFO of Ingersoll Rand's air conditioning business for Latin America. And so just to kind of uh, add a little fuel to the fire, what was happening at that time is he was pretty much traveling 75% of the time. So he's all over South America. He would he would leave on Sunday, come on Saturday, leave again on Sunday. So I was by myself, three kids. And at that time, there were two, three, and six yeah, around that age. I just said, this is not sustainable. Husband is all over South America. I'm by myself. He's a CFO. And I said to Matt, I said, Matt, what if, what if we entertain the idea of hiring Edgar? This way we have dedicated management. And it was way before a firm like ours is ready for dedicated management. I mean, it doesn't really happen until you have, you know, revenues around maybe closer to 5 million, but it just wasn't sustainable. It wasn't working for me personally and just me trying to juggle the advisory side and the business side. And I knew that with someone like an Edgar who had that sort of strategic mindset that it would only help us grow even more. So Matt entertained the idea. We kind of met at his house. We, you know, it was Matt, his wife, Edgar and I, and we just talked, we're like, listen, who cares more about our own success than we do? Who? And they're like, oh, I mean, this is it. The four of us, we've got everything to lose. So then we decided that he would quit Ingersoll Rand and he would come and basically run to buy his financial advisors. And this poor guy, I mean, his, his, he, he, his background is, you know, with a firm like uh, Train and Ingersoll Rand, it's just a different beast. It wasn't like just, sure, I'm just going to now run a RIA. So I said, just come in and just take a good six months and just observe, just kind of learn. And that's exactly what he did. But he was incredible. And so a lot of the success that we have had, I attribute to the fact that he sort of brought that corporate mindset and that sort of strategic outlook on what we were doing. So it, I think really he was the the catalyst to us taking off after he came on board in October of 2017. So help me understand just, I, I guess, uh, like titles and division of duties now between you and Matt 
and and your husband coming in like who's responsible for what how to like how does this org chart work yes we have a beautiful org chart okay so basically everything i didn't want to do edgar took so edgar <laughs> cfo Fine way to write a job description whatever we don't want to do he does so he <laughs> he is our cfo he handles you know Everything to do with financing and budget, you know, creating budgets, having a plan. So he really he started treating us like the same thing he did at Ingersoll Rand, just sort of having a plan and what are we working towards. He he was doing for us. And it just a a quick note, like it, it is worth noting when a deal happens and there's been a purchase and there's a big old bank loan and and debt payments. There is a level of managing your books and financing and business projections and budgets that take on a different level of kind of pressure and obligation and concern for the firm. And I, I think you know, most of us that are running firms want to have some reasonable accounting of how we're doing and keep track of the books. But there is a, another level of business projections that often can and do need to happen in a certain stringency around how budgeting occurs because the bank expects to be paid and you don't want to screw that up. So you do have to get a little bit deeper into projecting and managing the finances when, when you've done a succession plan and there's, and there's a loan on the books. Right. It, it, at that point, it wasn't just, you know, I'll get to the books, you know, and I'll clean it up. And no, I mean, they were asking for financials and I had to provide them. And so it, it, it really did take on sort of a, a life of its own. So we 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 put a whole list together and we said Edgar this is these are all the things we think that you'd be able to help us with from you know managing the finances creating sort of a strategic plan budgeting anything to do with HR he took the whole HR function which at that time it may not have seemed like much, but it was it was becoming almost a, a full time job in itself. Because if you know, one of the things I knew from the beginning is, like I told you, hiring and and retaining talent is a challenge for us, right? Because we need smart people, so we bring them in. The, how do we bring them in the door? What's going to attract them to Tobias Financial Advisors versus a you know? brand name out there and then what's going to keep them here. So immediately we thought we need to start looking like an organized, you know, firm that has a vision and a mission. So creating that culture. So Edgar jumped on that. We have to create a culture. We have to all sort of buy into who we are, how we want to do it and who we're going to do it for. So creating that vision and mission, streamlining all that. So the HR became a big part of what he was doing. Even aligning compensation, like I, I, you know, pre sort of takeover bonuses and raises were sort of a number out of a hat. Well, I said, that doesn't make sense. How are we then making sure that we have all these people behind us rowing in the same direction? What's going to make them want us to be successful? So developing a compensation structure that really did align their goals to ours so the HR function, marketing at that, you know, I, I don't have to tell you compliance is a burden if, for us. You have to, if we're going to put any blog post, everything has to be compliance approved. So he took over all of the compliance and marketing functions. So today he is our CFO, <laughs> COO, 
He is our head of marketing, HR. So he has, those are the four main functions. And he's also a certified exit planning uh, advisor. Uh, So talking to our business owners about exit strategy, just because that's his, his expertise is in the, you know, running a business. Interesting. And so, and so then what is, what is your role and Matt's role now as, as those carved up? Good. So what we also did, uh, just kind of thinking about how can we develop people and grow, is we started implementing the diamond team structures. So From Angie Herber's work. Exactly. So basically, Matt and I are the heads of two diamonds, with Matt also sort of head of portfolio strategy as our CFA. He is our chief investment officer. So he is head of a diamond and heads up portfolio strategy. I am the head of another diamond and basically talking about strategic planning for our clients. What's that going to look like? What are the strategies we should be implementing and sort of more of the of the business development side? So doing more of the CEO type functions, making sure the the team is brought up to speed. Are we all delivering the same level of service and how, and what does that look like? Okay. So kind of standards for the the practice itself, I guess, like standards for the advice of the firm. So then tell us about just how this is going over the past three plus years now. You're, you're, You're a couple of years in having written the check for buying out the firm at roughly 250 million of AUM. So what what's the what's the state of the practice today? Like what's the what's the size of the firm? What's the size of the team? Uh, what does it look like now? So we we reached a major milestone in the middle of a pandemic year, <laughs> which makes it that much more of a reason to celebrate. We our AUM is as of end of last year was five hundred and thirteen million, and we now have a staff of sixteen. It's no longer just Matt and I on the advisory side. We now have seven uh, on the advisory side. We have a dedicated portfolio analyst. It's no longer Matt, you know, pushing trades through, you know, Matt oversees the portfolio strategy, but we have someone who's, you know, who's doing all the research and, you know, doing all the trades. We also have a dedicated tax specialist because that's one of our biggest strength is tax. I'm a CPA, you know, 12 years at Bessemer Trust uh, coming up with strategies on tax minimization, wealth transfer. That's sort of and, the- And Ben was a CPA as well, right? Like the, the firm the firm has always had some, some tax roots. Yes. Yeah. And that, that's one of the things that really sets us apart is that, you know, we don't just say we do tax planning. We really do tax planning. So that's one of the reasons we attract a lot of clients. And I think, you know, when we survey our clients, which also was one of Edgar's ideas, that's one of the key things they say. I'm just surprised with the level of tax planning that's delivered. It really is above and beyond what they were expecting. Uh, But that's one of our biggest strengths, I think, followed by the estate planning. We catch so many things that, you know, people, they don't know what they don't know. So... So dedicated tax specialist, we started our financial planning team. We've promoted that client administrator that was here since the Ben days. She's been sort of 
she's beginning our financial planning team. So we're kind of creating more of a structure around how we're doing what we're doing so that we can continue this engine. You know, we can continue developing our people. And, you know, it's a tall order to try to hire an advisor who has tax knowledge. So I knew that it, that's just not sustainable and not everyone loves. And can you believe it? Not everyone is passionate about tax. So it's such a tragedy to me that this is just one of these things I've had to accept in the world that. Not not everyone shares our passion for taxes, but I I don't hold any grudges to anyone. We're all we're all born in our own. We're exactly we all have our, our our deficiency. So not having a tax passion is one, but so needing a dedicated tax specialist was going to be key because we were finding it difficult to hire client advisors who who were going to be able to provide the tax advice, and that could be dangerous, right? We want to make sure that if we're giving tax advice, we uh, we've done the research and, and we know what they can or can't do. So that uh, my my goal is that having spent 12 years at a firm like Bessemer Trust and seeing what are the things that work really well, right? I mean, on the planning side, on the holistic wealth management side, it was done very well, right? I was one of those pillars. So my goal is to be able to build this structure to be able to serve that client base that, you know, they don't have the, you know, they're not the billionaires, right, that are getting this service. And to me, being able to build this structure, to be able to serve those clients that are not, you know, Bessemer caliber as of yet, but really needed, you know, because unfortunately, this is like a whole, you know, they, they're, they have the wealth and the planning is that much more meaningful for this client base. It actually moves the needle. I have to tell you, it was, I, I loved it. The fact that I now realize how much more impactful my planning was for my clients here. Not that it wasn't impactful there, but it just, it, it took on a new meaning in terms of really helping families. I mean, providing that peace of mind that we were helping them achieve their goals, but with a cherry on top, you know? And, and how many clients are with the, with the firm now? So right now we have 257 clients if we're going to go by client count. However, however, the reason why we have 257 clients is because one of my big initiatives is looking at the age of our clients when we took over the firm. I knew it was essential that we start developing relationships with our clients' children. So we... As soon as uh, we are working with a client, the next step is, you know, we'd like to start engaging your children. We will help them review their employee benefits and help them start a Roth IRA. So since I've joined, we've really done a good job working with NextGen, which, which means we have more clients from a client count. But I would say we're probably more in the 170 to 180 families because these, these folks wouldn't be our clients if their parents weren't. Can you just talk a little bit more about that for a moment? Like, what are you doing to to make these connections to clients as children? Like, just what what are you doing? What services are you offering? How are you reaching out to them? Who does the work internally at the firm? Like, how does that next generation client initiative actually work? So, yeah, what we find is that these these children of our clients are actually the ideal 
client for our associates to start developing and start practicing sort of like a you know, lead role. And they connect better. I mean, they're, you know, 25 year old talking to another 25 year old, they, they can just connect better. So what we do is, you know, we, we call them, we say, Hey, you know, and, and the parents usually give them a sort of a heads up, you know, the folks at Tobias are going to call you. They just want to talk to you about some potential planning opportunities. So usually we start with, Hey, we're here to help you. You know, what are questions you have? Are you starting a, a career? You know, sometimes they have us review their offer letter and the benefits and helping them walk them through whatever selections. And then sometimes we, then we engage them even more, right? We should start a Roth. We should start this. So really it's, it's just a matter of keeping them engaged and we treat them. I'm not going to say they get the full wealth management, but essentially whatever they need. They may not necessarily get a tax projection just because they're just a W-2. And we know for the most part, they're covered by withholding, but we'll check their W-2 and hey, can we do more for the 401ks? You know, can we bump that up? Can we maximize? Are you doing at least the piece that you're going to get the matching on? So it, it, you know, simple things that we could be doing that just helps us develop that relationship. But I think more importantly, it's helping my associate advisors feel like they're, you know, they're taking the lead on a relationship. And I tell them, you treat them the way we treat the parents because they're giving their parents feedback. You know, what you don't want is a 30-year-old going back to the parents and saying, you know, hey, you know, so-and-so was really not helpful. So uh, to me, they are just as important as, as the parents are because, we all know if if you haven't developed a relationship, it's too late once the parents die. I mean, or something happens and the wealth is transferring to next gen. If you haven't done that throughout, it's too late when at that moment. And so are you are you charging them separately for these advice services? Are you creating a pricing package? Is it just like part of the bundle with the parents? Do you just if there happens to be a little bit of dollars to manage, you manage that. And otherwise it's, it's kind of pro bono for the client household. Like how does this work from, from the business model end? Pretty much. We don't charge extra. There, there's no financial planning fee for them. If we open up a Roth or start a brokerage, they pay the the standard rate without a, a minimum, right? So if we have just investment management, that would have a $3,000 minimum. They there's no minimum for that for them. It's waived. And we'll just have them sign like a standard, you know, financial planning agreement that says we won't charge you. Just this is the scope of our engagement is that if you ask, ask me questions, we'll provide advice, but there's no fee. Okay. Because you really just, you just want the relationship there and established so that if, if and when a client passes away, you, you've already got a relationship with the kids. And then hopefully that means the, the, the business relationship continues. Right. And I, I tell the younger associates, this is not for me. This is for you guys. <laughs> They're your age, not my age. So then I just help me understand, like, where did all this growth come from? I mean, three, three years ago, I guess three and a half years ago, like you're, you're, you're signing on a deal uh, of a firm that's about 250 million under management. Fast forward three years later, it's essentially doubled. The staff is more than doubled. Like, where did all the growth come from? It's a miracle. No, um, 
the client service, uh, as I mentioned, you know, raising the bar. So there were a lot of client referrals on, wow, you, you know, you guys are, are really bringing it. So a lot of client referrals. My biggest strength, I would say, is, is building relationships with estate planning attorneys and CPAs. You know, I can speak their language and I can work really well with them. So just building that rapport and just saying, hey, here's what we're doing for our clients. Here's the planning that we are talking to our clients about. What do you think about it? And, and so just being able to have that professional relationship that has helped with attorneys referring clients to us, CPAs referring clients. I, I am curious there for a moment. I know a lot of advisors out there who essentially like have relationships with attorneys and CPAs, have joint clients with them, send referrals to them, don't get any referrals back. What are you doing differently that it's it's actually making business and referrals show up from these attorneys and accountants? I would say that I I really try to engage them. Uh, so now, for example, right, we everyone's talking about a proposed Biden tax reform and and a reduction on the estate tax exemption. So, like what I did is I, I put together you know a whole deck of of slides on different strategies that can help our client base. Right, remember I not working with the billionaire. So I need to think a little bit more creatively. I, you know, I can't have these clients creating slats and just giving it all away because they might need it. Right. Um, so, you know, just coming up with creative ideas on certain things that we could be doing for this client base. And then I'll just schedule a call and say, Hey, these are some of the things that I'm thinking about, you know, I'd love to just, you know, do a sound check, make sure that I'm not completely off the mark? What are your thoughts? And just keeping them engaged so that when the situation comes up, hopefully for one of their clients, they think of me. And and when we do, for instance, the estate planning, we're very involved. So we're at that meeting with the attorney and the clients and we're brainstorming together, you know, hey, you have a special needs. Well, how do we want to structure the trust? You know, what are restrictions you want if you pass for your husband? So through those conversations, I think these attorneys, they feel really comfortable that if they have another client and it falls under that scenario that, hey, maybe uh, Tobias Financial Advisors can handle it because we just did this case. So I think it's a, a function of engagement. When you talk about like scheduling a call with like the the accountant and saying you want to, you know, we've got these strategies we're thinking about, we want to do a a sound check, as as you put it, does that mean these are are generally uh, accountants or attorneys you already have joint clients with? Like, hey, I'm calling about Bob. He's a client of both of ours. We've got some ideas, and we just wanted to bounce this off of you and and start it that way. Or are you also reaching out and trying to do this with those you don't have any joint clients with, and just like, hey, I want to share some of the ideas of what we're doing with our clients and see if that sparks a relationship here. A, a little bit of both. You know, I think when I reach out to CPAs, it might be about a mutual client, but I want to add value. I think, you know, you, you have to give. It's not just about, well, I gave you a referral. Where's my payback? Like I genuinely, it's about, call, call me a nerd, but maybe even just talking strategy and just, you know, if it's, hey, we we heard this at, at the Heckerling conference and here's how I think I want to implement it. You know, what are your thoughts? So I think it's 
you know, a, a different professional conversation, not just about, hey, this is an issue that so-and-so is having. For all of the CPAs that I work with, I said, why don't we schedule a, a video call, Zoom, and I want to walk you through how to help your team identify planning opportunities for your clients, because you're going to look like the hero if you're able to, you know, as you're preparing. And, and you and I both know, I mean, tax season, as tough as it is, but that's your moment to shine because you're touching every client. So there's your moment to see the red flag that the client should be doing something differently. So having, I had a whole session with a a couple of CPAs just to walk them through here. When you're seeing this, this should be your next question. And a lot of the, even the managers were like, oh yeah, I didn't think about that. Or yeah, that is a a good time to bring that up. And so are, are, are there any other drivers for for growth? Client referrals that picked up as you hired more and reinvested in the service, building relationships with attorneys and CPAs where you're doing kind of these outreaches like, hey, I've been working on planning ideas. Can we talk about them together as a as a way to build rapport? Yeah, and I think our our marketing, I have really good relationships with journalists. Um, they like to call and just pick my brain on different articles they're working on. Um, and that that has certainly helped. There was a recent Barron's feature. So that really has had my my emails blowing up here. So I, I where, think the Where marketing, did that come from? How did that come about? You know, uh, this is a journalist that calls me, has been calling me for the past couple of years just on different articles he's working on and just get my take. What are the tax implications? You know, how should, how would this affect the family? What are things you're doing? Just building that rapport. And so he was working on feature for Barron's and it's so funny. He calls me, he goes, I, I'm working on these features and I just did one on the, on the creator of the 4% rule. And and I'd like to to do one on you next. I'm like, I'm following the guy that created the 4% rule. Really? <laughs> so yeah, that has helped. Uh, we, we, we do invest in marketing. And so a lot of our growth, all of our growth has essentially been just organic. People Google us. Say, what, what have you invested into in the marketing end? If you say you're, you're, you're spending dollars there. Yeah, we, we hired a team. Uh, they're based out of California. Their um, expertise is RIAs. So it's out and about communications out in, in California. And so they they helped us, you know, not only with the website, but just the blog post, that search engine optimization, just putting putting ourselves out there. And, you know, I like to respond to a lot of the media quotes. And I my rule of thumb is if I can just answer in five minutes, I'm responding just because it's a topic that I I know well. So they tend to get picked up. So I I guess, you know, just putting ourselves out there that has essentially paid off. And so like spending, spending more dollars with a firm that focuses in RIA, I guess, like more custom RIA websites, you're finding like that is giving an ROI for you that is producing favorable results. So I think there's a lot of advisors that are still of the mindset, like, well, ironically, b- business is made the way you're doing it, Marianella, which is client referrals and referrals from attorneys and accountants. Like, why are you hiring a fancy firm to make a pretty website? I think we're in an era where if someone is recommending, someone gives a client your name, you'd be surprised how much 
they're researching and, you know, they're doing their homework and they're going online, they're checking the website, they're, you know, they've checked you out. So I think uh, it's not just enough to wait for a COI to refer you. I think you need to to look good once that name is given to someone. So we, to us, it's important. I, I know some advisors say, if someone just calls me from a, a Google, I, I don't want that client. Like, why? I mean, this is the error that we're in. I mean, we, we onboarded clients start to finish during a pandemic completely virtually. Like, People are out there and they're doing their homework. We have a more of an educated consumer. So I think it's important that the website and that whatever people are finding on you reflects the reputation that you that you want to have out there. So to us, it's important to invest in that. And I, I am curious as well, if you're to ask, like the the firm continues to be called Tobias Financial. You know, they I mean, I know a lot of advisors out there actually make the case like, you know, you you damage the value of your firm when you put your name in it the way that Ben Tobias did by calling it Tobias Financial Advisors. As someone that not only bought the firm as a successor, but like bought it and grew it, and it still got Ben's name on it, at least Ben's last name on it. Like, how do you look at and think about the the name of the firm? It's so funny you bring that up. I thought, you know what? Ben has built a firm. He's has a reputation. Why would I want to not use that? Why wouldn't I want to showcase that? And I joked and I said, I'm going to put your name in lights, Ben. This is, I'm going to make it front and center. I think we're going to build on this. You were a pioneer of fiduciary service, fee only, right? You were a pioneer in this. And so you're, we want to make sure that people see that the, 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 those fundamentals, why you started the business, right? You saw that there was a disconnect between a client's needs and what was being provided by brokers or insurance agents. And so you bridge that gap and that, we're going to we're going to continue that so we just thought that there was real really no value in changing the name why would i want to erase the history i want people to ask who is tobias why you know why keep the name well he's you know 40 years of history and why we started still remains i mean nothing's changed in terms of what we believe at the core of what we do and so like the the fact that it's got his name attached to it i mean it sounds like for you is is not only not a not a detriment or a you know a reduction in the value of the firm like this is an asset to you because it's you know it's it's a it's a name that's been around for 40 years of practice and 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 means something right i have a better story i mean we we say stories are important and and they resonate with people i have a better story to say to buy financial advisors has been doing this for 40 years. What am I going to say if I just say, well, ABC advisors, we were Tobias, but we changed our name, but we've been doing this for 40 years. You know, it's just kind of, it just changes the script. And I don't think it's for the better. I mean, I, I came from Bessemer Trust. Who's Bessemer, right? That's the that's the process used during Steel Carnegie. I think the name having the history and being able to tell that story is more valuable than my ego. I don't need Collado. I wouldn't want that. I don't think it adds anything. So, so as you look back over the, the past couple of years, having made a transition into the, 
the independent channel out of a firm like Bessemer and, and now acquiring the firm and, and, and serving as the successor, what, what surprised you the most about trying to, trying to build an independent advisory business? I think uh, initially what surprised me is, and it's kind of, it, it was sad actually, just to see, I guess I was sheltered from this in a way, you know, I, when you're a CPA, you started a firm like Arthur Anderson, you're, you're, you know, you're, you're ingrained, you're taught to do right by your client. And then joining a, a major trust company, I mean, you were there to do right by the client. I just, kind of the upbringing. I was surprised to see that there's this whole world of, of clients that are not given the right advice. And so it, it became more of a passion to me just being able to be in this world and maybe save people from that. That, that was a surprise. Another surprise was, you know, my ability to run a wealth management firm. I never thought that that was going to be my path. I sort of, my trajectory at Bessemer Trust is maybe one day I'd be the director of tax just because I'm, I'm, I'm really passionate about the the tax planning. So that just surprised that I'm, I'm able to do it. And I guess maybe even inspire, uh, dare I say, inspire a team of people to follow in my footsteps. So yeah, I, I think pleasantly surprised on that front, but and hopefully make a difference for the the part that was not so pleasantly surprising. So out of curiosity then, like what what led you to make the shift? Like if you were at at Bessemer and it was going well and you had your eyes on on a you know director of tax position someday after after being there more than a decade, what made you take the take the meeting with Matt and then take the plunge with Tobias? Yeah, yeah. So when we moved to Florida, I ended up moving to an area west of Fort Lauderdale. And I was commuting to Brickell in Miami. I'm not sure if you're familiar with with that distance, but I don't wish that commute on anyone. And so I'm here with, with three kids, three boys to boot, just kind of juggling. And I'm by myself. I don't have family here. Uh, So just kind of juggling the home life, the sports, this, that by myself and and just this commute, it it just wasn't sustainable. So I, I, something was going to have to give. And so when this came up, again, not kind of not thinking that this, I I wasn't going to ever do something like this, but when this came up, I thought, well, what do I have to lose? It's something different. It's exciting. Worst case, I, I, talking to myself. I said, self, you can always go back. You know, I never burn bridges. I love my former Bessemer colleagues. I I just think the world of them. So I I thought I can always go back. I can find either go back to Bessemer Trust, go to public accounting. So there was opportunity for me to do something somewhere. It is a good point, right? That, you know, after, after, um, after 15 plus years of experience at big accounting firms and 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 big bank and trust companies like you know you your resume has a plenty of strength and 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 credibility like if this independent advisory thing doesn't work out like there will be jobs right there's a giant talent shortage for experienced advisors right now that gets worse every year like there will be jobs if you if you decide you need to go back and find one 
Right. And I thought this was a unique opportunity to try something different. It seemed exciting. So I, I think as Steve Harvey would say, you know, you just have to jump and hope the parachute opens. And that's what I did. So what was the low point for you on the journey? Yeah, I, I, it's, it's a big responsibility. And I, I think I realized like, you know, this is no long, this really is not a nine to five. And so I just, and I think I'm still trying to come up with a system that works so that I don't find myself, even when I'm not working, my mind is preoccupied that I should be doing this, should be doing that. So I'm still, I think we're still in the middle of the growing pains. We haven't been able to get the team. It feels like most people are here less than a year just because we've we've grown so quickly. So we haven't reached that that sweet spot where okay now these people are up to speed. I don't. It doesn't need me twenty four hours a day, seven days a week. So my struggle, and I would say now is that I I feel like I constantly I need to be doing something, even on weekends, just trying to disconnect. So I, I think I'm still in the thick of it. I, I haven't found, uh, I haven't reached that point where I can step back a little bit and, and have more of a, a balance. But, you know, what is balance? I I, I joke. I'm like, I, I love what I do. So even I, I'll come in on Saturday because, you know, what else should I be doing but reviewing a tax return, right? So I, I think I'm still in the thick of it. I, I hope to be able to continue developing the team so that it doesn't mentally just feel like I'm constantly working. So anything... You wish you'd done differently then? Like uh, anything you you wish you could go back and tell you from like five years ago when you're taking the meeting with Matt and, and starting down this journey with Tobias? I, I think I'm pretty happy with how everything – remember, we were pleasantly surprised. This we, we would have been now at the point where Ben would have started stepping away more and and he really is retired. He, you know, if he comes in once every six months uh, these days, that's a lot just because he's got a lot on his plate. But I, I think I'm, I'm happy with all the decisions that we made. I think now it's about developing that succession plan for next gen, even though I'm 43 and, you know, I don't want to wait to do this when I'm 65, my vision is that we need to develop some sort of a, a system where we're engaging and having our talent sort of have some skin in it as well, maybe earlier. How that's going to look like and what that's going to look like, I, I don't know yet. We're working through that, but I'm I'm happy with all of the choices we've made. And I think that we, we continue to grow. That's sort of my focus. So what advice would you give younger or newer advisors looking to to become a planner today? And I, I think I'm, I'm particularly curious of any thoughts or words of advice you have to advisors of color, because I know we, we do not have a very diverse industry. You do have a very diverse firm. You know, the, the team at Tobias now is, is very racially diverse, very gender diverse. So, you know, you you seem to be figuring something out there that a lot of other firms are struggling with. So what, what advice would you give around you know, next generation advisors and, and particularly advisors of color coming into the, into the business? 
I think, uh, you know, they need to find a firm that is committed to nurturing and developing them and really appreciating who they are. I owe, I'm going to say I owe my success throughout all these years from the minute I stepped into, you know, the doors at Arthur Anderson to some of the best mentors. I, I you know, who, who you work for is really going to dictate your path. And I think, you know, as much as when people are interviewing for a job, they think the, the firm is interviewing them. I, I, I challenge them that they need to interview, you know, they're the ones that really need to interview the firm and the manager because you want to work for someone who's genuine and who's really going to be vested in your success. And that could be, that could make or break you. I've seen many advisors who've had these managers where, you know, they take all the credit. They're not looking to elevate you. And I I tell my associates, I need to make you uncomfortable. You're going to grow from being uncomfortable. So I think, you know, what I tell them is don't, don't settle. I think you need to find the firm that believes that, that all of us being different contributes to the value that we add to client service. So really just be really selective and picky about who you're going to work for. And especially early on, you know, that's going to make the difference. And I've heard so many advisors say, well, I got my CFP and I, and I started working and I was so disappointed. It just, you know, it, it didn't feel like I had the opportunity to grow. No one was really developing me and it was sort of survival of the fittest. So it's not the right environment. And I think if you choose an environment that's rooted in education, which is our focus, you know, our vision is to be able to inspire, educate, and prepare our clients to live the lives they want. And that applies also to our staff. You know, we have to educate. So if you find the firm that's rooted in education and and really vested in the development of next gen, that's what you need to go for. And then what I I just, I have to ask, like, what, what is it that your firm is doing to be able to to do that for and, and and with advisors of color in particular that other firms just don't seem to be moving the needle on this for I feel like not a lack of talking about it in the industry but most firms team pages still don't look very diverse yours is like what's what's different for what you're doing there you know, I, I I don't know what comes first, is it the chicken or the egg? But, you know, the tone of the interview, uh, I, I think has a lot to do with it, is making people feel like this is going to be the environment where their authenticity is going to be valued and appreciated. I don't know what those conversations look like for other folks, but it really is hard to say that you believe in diversity and inclusion if the, the firm doesn't look like they do, I, 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 I struggle because everyone asked me that question, just what is the, what's the secret? And I think it's just those conversations, you know, being genuine and making sure that whoever it is you're interviewing, whatever their background, whatever their color is, that they're going to feel like they're coming into an environment where their difference is going to be uh, valued. So I see what you mean on, on sort of the, the chicken and egg problem, like it, you know, if you're a firm that's trying to hire diversity and you're talking in your interviews about trying to be supportive of diversity, and then someone goes and looks at your website and your team page and it's not diverse, 
it it kind of sounds and rings hollow. It's hard to attract diverse candidates if the firm isn't diverse. And of course, if the firm isn't diverse and that blocks you from attracting diverse candidates, then you never get diverse because <laughs> you're stuck stuck at zero. I, I guess that that becomes the chicken and egg problem. Like if, if if you want your firm to be more diverse, you have to figure out how to break the initial barrier of diversity in your firm and and it may compound from there, but but if you can't figure out how to cross that line to start, you're going to be stuck with the chicken and egg problem. That's perfect. You said it better than I could have ever said it. So as as we wrap up, this is a, a podcast about success. And, and one of the themes that always comes up is even just the word success means different things to different people. And so you're you're on this incredible track of of successfully building the firm and and buying in and taking over and, and doubling it in three years. So, you know, like the business is going well, and I know you've still got a long time horizon on the business, but I'm wondering, how do you define success for yourself at this point? You know, I I guess it's living the life you were envisioning, and I, I think I'm in it. This is exciting. I feel like I, I make a difference in, in my clients' lives. And so that would be a key thing for success for me. But I guess if I had to take it further is just um, have a little bit more freedom, um, I guess, just mentally being able to disconnect. I think that that'll sort of feel more like success. From a numbers perspective, we sort of had a target. We want to get to a billion. I'm not sure that, okay, the target is there. That's success. I think success is going to look like a a full team of developed advisors where I don't necessarily have to be so much in the weeds. But I think as I I mentioned, um, you know, I'm I'm enjoying the journey. So to me, I'm I'm living the success right now just because we're, we're enjoying the ride. Very cool. Very cool. Well, I appreciate you, Marinella, joining us and, and sharing the journey on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This has been so much fun. Absolutely. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.